The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Part 27 of Lincoln's Yarns and Stories by Alexander K. McClure. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 27. The Story of Lincoln's Life. When Abraham Lincoln once was asked to tell the story of his life, he replied, It is contained in one line of Gray's Elegy in a Country Churchyard, The Short and Simple Annals of the Poor. That was true at the time he said it, as everything else he said was truth, but he was then only at the beginning of a career that was to glorify him as one of the heroes of the world, and place his name forever beside the immortal name of the mighty Washington. Many great men, particularly those of America, began life in humbleness and poverty, but none ever came from such depths or rose to such a height as Abraham Lincoln. His birthplace in Hardin County, Kentucky, was but a wilderness, and Spencer County, Indiana, to which the Lincoln family removed when Abraham was in his eighth year, was a wilder and still more uncivilized region. The little red schoolhouse, which now so thickly adorns the country hillside, had not yet been built. There were scattered log schoolhouses, but they were few and far between. In several of these, Mr. Lincoln got the rudiments of an education, an education that was never finished, for to the day of his death he was a student and a seeker after knowledge. Some records of his schoolboy days are still left us. One is a book made and bound by Lincoln himself, in which he had written the table of weights and measures, and the sums to be worked out therefrom. This was his arithmetic for he was too poor to own a printed copy. A Youthful Poet On one of the pages of this quaint book he had written these four lines of schoolboy doggerel. Abraham Lincoln, his hand and pen, he will be good, but God knows when. The poetic spirit was strong in the young scholar just then, for on another page of the same book he had written these two verses, which are supposed to have been original with him. Time, what an empty vapor tis, and days, how swift they are. Swift as an Indian arrow, fly on like a shooting star. The present moment just is here, then slides away in haste, that we can never say their hours, but only say their past. Another specimen of the poetical or rhyming ability is found in the following couplet written by him for his friend Joseph C. Richardson. Good boys who to their books apply will all be great men by and by. In all, Lincoln's schooling did not amount to a year's time, but he was a constant student outside of the schoolhouse. He read all the books he could borrow, and it was his chief delight during the day to lie under the shade of some tree, or at night in front of an open fireplace, reading and studying. His favorite books were the Bible and Aesop's Fables, which he kept always within reach and read time and again. 
the first law book he ever read was the statutes of indiana and it was from this work that he derived his ambition to be a lawyer made speeches when a boy when he was but a barefoot boy he would often make political speeches to the boys in the neighborhood and when he had reached young manhood and was engaged in the labor of chopping wood or splitting rails he continued this practice of speech-making with only the stumps and surrounding trees for hearers at the age of seventeen he had attained his full height of six feet four inches and it was at this time he engaged as a ferry boatman on the ohio river at thirty-seven cents a day that he was seriously beginning to think of public affairs even at this early age is shown by the fact that about this time he wrote a composition on the american government urging the necessity for preserving the constitution and perpetuating the union a rockport lawyer by the name of pickert who read this composition declared that the world couldn't beat it when the dreaded disease known as the milk sick created such havoc in indiana in eighteen twenty nine the father of abraham lincoln who was of a roving disposition sought and found a new home in illinois locating near the town of decatur in macon county on a bluff overlooking the sangamon river a short time thereafter abraham lincoln came of age and having done his duty to his father began life on his own account his first employer was a man named denton offutt who engaged lincoln together with his stepbrother and john hanks to take a boatload of stock and provisions to new orleans offutt was so well pleased with the energy and skill that lincoln displayed on this trip that he engaged him as clerk in a store which offutt opened a few months later at new salem it was while clerking for offutt that lincoln performed many of those marvelous feats of strength for which he was noted in his youth and displayed his wonderful skill as a wrestler in addition to being six feet four inches high he now weighed two hundred and fourteen pounds and his strength and skill were so great combined that he could out-wrestle and out-lift any man in that section of the country during his clerkship in offutt's store lincoln continued to read and study and made considerable progress in grammar and mathematics offutt failed in business and disappeared from the village in the language of lincoln he petered out and his tall muscular clerk had to seek other employment assistant pilot on a steamboat in his first public speech which had already been delivered lincoln had contended that the sangamon river was navigable and it now fell to his lot to assist in giving practical proof of his argument a steamboat had arrived at new salem from cincinnati and lincoln was hired as an assistant in piloting the vessel through the uncertain channel of the sangamon river to the illinois river the way was obstructed by a mill dam lincoln insisted to the owners of the dam that under the federal constitution and laws no one had a right to dam up or obstruct a navigable stream and as he had already proved that the sangamon was navigable a portion of the dam was torn away and the boat passed safely through captain lincoln pleased him 
at this period in his career the black hawk war broke out and lincoln was one of the first to respond to governor reynolds call for a thousand mounted volunteers to assist the united states troop in driving black hawk back across the mississippi lincoln enlisted in the company from sangamon county and was elected captain he often remarked that this gave him greater pleasure than anything that had happened in his life up to this time he had however no opportunities in this war to perform any distinguished service upon his return from the black hawk war in which he said afterward in a humorous speech when in congress that he fought bled and came away he was an unsuccessful candidate for the legislature this was the only time in his life as he himself has said that he was ever beaten by the people although defeated in his own town of new salem he received all of the two hundred and eight votes cast except three failure as a businessman lincoln's next business venture was with william barry in a general store under the firm name of lincoln and barry but did not take long to show that he was not adapted for a business career the firm failed barry died and the debts of the firm fell entirely upon lincoln many of these debts he might have escaped legally but he assumed them all and it was not until fifteen years later that the last indebtedness of lincoln and barry was discharged during his membership in this firm he had applied himself to the study of law beginning at the beginning that is with blackstone now that he had nothing to do he spent much of his time lying under the shade of a tree poring over law books borrowed from a comrade in the black hawk war who was then a practicing lawyer at springfield gaines fame as a storyteller it was about this time too that lincoln's fame as a storyteller began to spread far and wide his sayings and his jokes were repeated throughout that section of the country and he was famous as a storyteller before anyone ever heard of him as a lawyer or a politician it required no little moral courage to resist the temptation that beset an idle young man on every hand at that time for drinking and carousing were of daily and nightly occurrence lincoln never drank intoxicating liquors nor did he at that time use tobacco but in any sports that called for skill or muscle he took a lively interest even in horse races and cockfights surveyor with no strings on him john calhoun was at that time surveyor of sangamon county he had been a lawyer and had noticed the studious lincoln needing an assistant he offered the place to lincoln the average young man without any regular employment and hard pressed for means to pay his board as lincoln was would have jumped at the opportunity but a question of principle was involved which had to be settled before lincoln would accept calhoun was a democrat and lincoln was a whig therefore lincoln said i will take the office if i can be perfectly free in my political actions but if my sentiments or even expression of them are to be abridged in any way i would not have it or any other office with this understanding he accepted the office and began to study books on surveying furnished him by his employer he was not a natural mathematician and in working out his most difficult problems he sought the assistance of mentor graham a famous schoolmaster in those days who had previously assisted lincoln in his studies 
he soon became a competent surveyor however and was noted for the accurate way in which he ran his lines and located his corners surveying was not as profitable then as it has since become and the young surveyor often had to take his pay in some article other than money one old settler relates that for a survey made for him by lincoln he paid two buckskins which hannah armstrong foxed on his pants so that the briars would not wear them out about this time eighteen thirty three he was made postmaster at new salem the first federal office he ever held although the post office was located in a store lincoln usually carried the mail around in his hat and distributed it to people when he met them a member of the legislature the following year lincoln again ran for the legislature this time as an avowed whig of the four successful candidates lincoln received the second highest number of votes when lincoln went to take his seat in the legislature at vandalia he was so poor that he was obliged to borrow two hundred dollars to buy suitable clothes and uphold the dignity of his new position he took little part in the proceedings keeping in the background but forming many lasting acquaintances and friendships two years later when he was again a candidate for the same office there were more political issues to be met and lincoln met them with characteristic honesty and boldness during the campaign he issued the following letter new salem june thirteenth eighteen thirty six to the editor of the journal in your paper of last saturday i see a communication over the signature of many voters in which the candidates who are announced in the journal are called upon to show their hands agreed here's mine i go for all sharing the privilege of the government who assist in bearing its burdens consequently i go for admitting all whites to the right of suffrage who pay taxes or bear arms by no means excluding females if elected i shall consider the whole people of sangamon my constituents as well those that oppose as those that support me while acting as their representative i will be governed by their will on all subjects upon which i have the means of knowing what their will is and upon all others i shall do what my own judgment teaches me will best advance their interests whether elected or not i go for distributing the proceeds of the sales of public lands to the several states to enable our state in common with others to dig canals and construct railroads without borrowing money and paying the interest on it if alive on the first monday in november i shall vote for hugh l white for president very respectfully a lincoln this was just the sort of letter to win the support of the plain-spoken voters of sangamon county lincoln not only received more votes than any other candidate on the legislative ticket but the county which had always been democratic was turned whig the famous long nine the other candidates elected with lincoln were ninian w edwards john dawson andrew mccormick dan stone william f elkin robert l wilson joe fletcher and archer g herndon these were known as the long nine their average height was six feet and average weight two hundred pounds this legislature was one of the most famous that ever convened in illinois bonds to the amount of twelve million dollars were voted to assist in building thirteen hundred miles of railroad to widen and deepen all the streams in the state and to dig a canal from the illinois river to lake michigan 
lincoln favored all these plans but in justice to him it must be said that the people he represented were also in favor of them it was at this session that the state capital was changed from vandalia to springfield lincoln as the leader of the long nine had charge of the bill and after a long and bitter struggle succeeded in passing it begins to oppose slavery at this early stage in his career abraham lincoln began his opposition to slavery which eventually resulted in his giving liberty to four million human beings this legislature passed the following resolution on slavery resolved by the general assembly of the state of illinois that we highly disapprove of the formation of abolition societies and of the doctrines promulgated by them that the right of property in slaves is sacred to the slaveholding states by the federal constitution and that they cannot be deprived of that right without their consent that the general government cannot abolish slavery in the district of columbia against the consent of the citizens of said district without a manifest breach of good faith against this resolution lincoln entered a protest but only succeeded in getting one man in the legislature to sign the protest with him the protest was as follows revolutions upon the subject of domestic slavery having passed both branches of the general assembly at its present session the undersigned hereby protest against the passage of the same they believe that the institution of slavery is founded on both injustice and bad policy but that the promulgation of abolition doctrines tends rather to increase than abate its evils they believe that the Congress of the United States has no power under the Constitution to interfere with the institution of slavery in the different states. They believe that the Congress of the United States has the power under the Constitution to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia, but that the power ought not to be exercised unless at the request of the people of the district. The difference between these opinions and those contained in the above resolutions is their reason for entering this protest. Dan Stone, A. Lincoln, Representatives from the County of Sangamon. Begins to Practice Law At the end of this session of the legislature, Mr. Lincoln decided to remove to Springfield and practice law. He entered the office of John T. Stewart, a former comrade in the Black Hawk War, and in March 1837 was licensed to practice. Stephen T. Logan was judge of the circuit court, and Stephen A. Douglas, who was destined to become Lincoln's greatest political opponent, was prosecuting attorney. When Lincoln was not in his law office, his headquarters were in the store of his friend Joshua F. Speed, in which gathered all the youthful orators and statesmen of that day, and where many exciting arguments and discussions were held. Lincoln and Douglas both took part in the discussion held in Speed's store. Douglas was the acknowledged leader of the Democratic side, and Lincoln was rapidly coming to the front as a leader among the Whig debaters. One evening, in the midst of a heated argument, Douglas, or the Little Giant as he was called, exclaimed, This store is no place to talk politics. His First Joint Debate Arrangements were at once made for a joint debate between the leading Democrats and Whigs to take place in a local church. The Democrats were represented by Douglas, Calhoun, Lamborn, and Thomas. The Whig speakers were Judge Logan, Colonel E.D. Baker, Mr. Browning, and Lincoln. 
this discussion was the forerunner of the famous joint debate between lincoln and douglas which took place some years later and attracted the attention of the people throughout the united states although mr lincoln was the last speaker in the first discussion held his speech attracted more attention than any of the others and added much to his reputation as a public debater mr lincoln's last campaign for the legislature was in eighteen forty in the same year he was made an elector on the harrison presidential ticket and in his canvass of the state frequently met the democratic champion douglas in debate after eighteen forty mr lincoln declined re-election to the legislature but he was a presidential elector on the whig tickets of eighteen forty four and eighteen fifty two and on the republican ticket for the state at large in eighteen fifty six marries a springfield bell among the social bells of springfield was mary todd a handsome and cultivated girl of the illustrious descent which could be traced back to the sixth century to whom mr lincoln was married in eighteen forty two stephen a douglas was his competitor in love as well as in politics he courted mary todd until it became evident that she preferred mr lincoln previous to his marriage mr lincoln had two love affairs one of them so serious that it left an impression upon his whole future life one of the objects of his affection was miss mary owen of green county kentucky who decided that mr lincoln was deficient in those little links which make up the chain of woman's happiness the affair ended without any damage to mr lincoln's heart or the heart of the lady story of ann rutledge lincoln's first love however had a sad termination the object of his affections at that time was ann rutledge whose father was one of the founders of new salem like miss owen miss rutledge was also born in kentucky and was gifted with the beauty and graces that distinguish many southern women at the time that mr lincoln and ann rutledge were engaged to be married he thought himself too poor to properly support a wife and they decided to wait until such time as he could better his financial condition a short time thereafter miss rutledge was attacked with a fatal illness and her death was such a blow to her intended husband that for a long time his friends feared that he would lose his mind his duel with shields just previous to his marriage with mary todd mr lincoln was challenged to fight a duel by james shields then auditor of state the challenge grew out of some humorous letters concerning shields published in a local paper the first of these letters was written by mr lincoln the others by mary todd and her sister mr lincoln acknowledged the authorship of the letters without naming the ladies and agreed to meet shields on the field of honor as he had the choice of weapons he named broadswords and actually went to the place selected for the duel the duel was never fought mutual friends got together and patched up an understanding between mr lincoln and the hot-headed irishman forms new partnership before this time mr lincoln had dissolved partnership with stewart and entered into a law partnership with judge logan in eighteen forty three both lincoln and logan were candidates for nomination for congress and the personal ill-will caused by their rivalry resulted in the dissolution of the firm and the formation of a new law firm of lincoln and herndon which continued nominally at least until mr lincoln's death 
the congressional nomination however went to edward d baker who was elected two years later the principal candidates for the whig nomination for congress were mr lincoln and his former law partner judge logan party sentiment was so strongly in favor of lincoln that judge logan withdrew and lincoln was nominated unanimously the campaign that followed was one of the most memorable and interesting ever held in illinois defeats peter cartwright for congress mr lincoln's opponent on the democratic ticket was no less a person than old peter cartwright the famous methodist preacher and circuit writer cartwright had preached to almost every congregation in the district and had a strong following in all the churches mr lincoln did not underestimate the strength of his great rival he abandoned his law business entirely and gave his whole attention to the canvas this time mr lincoln was victorious and was elected by a large majority when lincoln took his seat in congress in eighteen forty seven he was the only whig member from illinois his great political rival douglas was in the senate the mexican war had already broken out which in common with his party he had opposed later in life he was charged with having opposed the voting of supplies to the american troops in mexico but this was a falsehood which he easily disproved he was strongly opposed to the war but after it was once begun he urged its vigorous prosecution and voted with the democrats on all measures concerning the care and pay of the soldiers his opposition to the war however cost him a re-election it cost his party the congressional district which was carried by the democrats in eighteen forty eight lincoln's former law partner judge logan secured the whig nomination that year and was defeated makes speeches for old zack in the national convention at philadelphia in eighteen forty eight mr lincoln was a delegate and advocated the nomination of general taylor after the nomination of general taylor or old zack or rough and ready as he was called mr lincoln made a tour of new york and several new england states making speeches for his candidate mr lincoln went to new england in this campaign on account of the great defection in the whig party general taylor's nomination was unsatisfactory to the free soil element and such leaders as henry wilson charles francis adams charles allen charles sumner stephen c phillips richard h dana jr and anson burlingame were in open revolt mr lincoln's speeches were confined largely to a defense of general taylor but at the same time he denounced the free soilers for helping to elect cass among other things he said that the free soilers had but one principle and that they reminded him of the yankee peddler going to sell a pair of pantaloons and describing them as large enough for any man and small enough for any boy it is an odd fact in history that the prominent whigs of massachusetts at that time became the opponents of mr lincoln's election to the presidency and the policy of his administration while the free soilers whom he denounced were among his strongest supporters advisers and followers at the second session of congress mr lincoln's one act of consequence was the introduction of a bill providing for the gradual emancipation of the slaves in the district of columbia joshua r giddings the great anti-slavery agitator and one or two lesser lights supported it but the bill was laid on the table 
after general taylor's election mr lincoln had the distribution of federal patronage in his own congressional district and this added much to his political importance although it was a ceaseless source of worry to him declines a high office just before the close of his term in congress mr lincoln was an applicant for the office of commissioner of the general land office but was unsuccessful he had been such a factor in general taylor's election that the administration thought something was due him and after his return to illinois he was called to washington and offered the governorship of the territory of oregon it is likely he would have accepted this had not mrs lincoln put her foot down with an emphatic no he declined a partnership with a well-known chicago lawyer and returning to his springfield home resumed the practice of law from this time until the repeal of the missouri compromise which opened the way for the admission of slavery into the territories mr lincoln devoted himself more industriously than ever to the practice of law and during those five years he was probably a greater student than he had ever been before his partner w h herndon has told of the changes that took place in the courts and in the methods of practice while mr lincoln was away lincoln as a lawyer when he returned to active practice he saw at once that the courts had grown more learned and dignified and that the bar relied more upon method and system and a knowledge of the statute law than upon the stump speech method of early days mr herndon tells us that lincoln would lie in bed and read by candlelight sometimes until two o'clock in the morning while his famous colleagues davis logan sweat edwards and herndon were soundly and sometimes loudly sleeping he read and re-read the statutes and books of practice devoured shakespeare who was always a favorite of his and studied euclid so diligently that he could easily demonstrate all the propositions contained in the six books mr lincoln detested office work he left all that to his partner he disliked to draw up legal papers or to write letters the firm of which he was a member kept no books when either lincoln or herndon received a fee they divided the money then and there if his partner were not in the office at the time mr lincoln would wrap up half of the fee in a sheet of paper on which he would write herndon's half giving the name of the case and place it in his partner's desk but in court arguing a case pleading to the jury and laying down the law lincoln was in his element even when he had a weak case he was a strong antagonist and when he had right and justice on his side as he nearly always had no one could beat him he liked an outdoor life hence he was fond of riding the circuit he enjoyed the company of other men liked discussion and argument loved to tell stories and to hear them laughing as heartily at his own stories as he did at those who were told to him End of Part 27part twenty eight of lincoln's yarns and stories by alexander k mcclure this librivox recording is in the public domain part twenty eight telling stories on the circuit the court circuit in those days was the scene of many a story-telling joust in which lincoln was always the chief 
frequently he would sit up until after midnight reeling off story after story each one followed by roars of laughter that could be heard all over the country tavern in which the storytelling group was gathered every type of character would be represented in these groups from the learned judge on the bench down to the village loafer lincoln's favorite attitude was to sit with his long legs propped up on the rail of the stove or with his feet against the wall and thus he would sit for hours entertaining a crowd or being entertained one circuit judge was so fond of lincoln's stories that he often would sit up until midnight listening to them and then declare that he had laughed so much he believed his ribs were shaken loose the great success of abraham lincoln as a trial lawyer was due to a number of facts he would not take a case if he believed that the law and justice were on the other side when he addressed a jury he made them feel that he only wanted fair play and justice he did not talk over their heads but got right down to a friendly tone such as we use in ordinary conversation and talked at them appealing to their honesty and common sense and making his argument plain by telling a story or two that brought the matter clearly within their understanding when he did not know the law in a particular case he never pretended to know it if there were no precedents to cover a case he would state his side plainly and fairly he would tell the jury what he believed was right for them to do and then conclude with his favorite expression it seems to me that this ought to be the law some time before the repeal of the missouri compromise a lawyer friend said to him lincoln the time is near at hand when we shall have to be all abolitionists or all democrats when that time comes my mind is made up he replied for i believe the slavery question never can be compromised the lion is aroused to action while lincoln took a mild interest in politics he was not a candidate for office except as a presidential elector from the time of leaving congress until the repeal of the missouri compromise this repeal legislation was the work of lincoln's political antagonist stephen a douglas and aroused mr lincoln to action as the lion is roused by some foe worthy of his great strength and courage mr douglas argued that the true intent and meaning of the act was not to legislate slavery into any territory or state nor to exclude it therefrom but to leave the people perfectly free to form and regulate their domestic institutions in their own way douglas argument amounts to this said mr lincoln that if any one man chooses to enslave another no third man shall be allowed to object after the adjournment of congress mr douglas returned to illinois and began to defend his action in the repeal of the missouri compromise his most important speech was made at springfield and mr lincoln was selected to answer it that speech alone was sufficient to make mr lincoln the leader of anti-slavery sentiment in the west and some of the men who heard it declared that it was the greatest speech he ever made with the repeal of the missouri compromise the whig party began to break up the majority of its members who were pronounced abolitionists began to form the nucleus of the republican party before this party was formed however mr lincoln was induced to follow douglas around the state and reply to him but after one meeting at peoria where they both spoke they entered into an agreement to return to their homes and make no more speeches during the campaign seeks a seat in the senate 
mr lincoln made no secret at this time of his ambition to represent illinois in the united states senate against his protests he was nominated and elected to the legislature but resigned his seat his old rival james shields with whom he was once near to a duel was then senator and his term was to expire the following year a letter written by mr lincoln to a friend in paris illinois at this time is interesting and significant he wrote i have a suspicion that a whig has been elected to the legislature from egar if this is not so why then nix cum arus but if it is so then should you not make a mark with him for me for united states senator i really have some chance another candidate besides mr lincoln was seeking the seat in the united states senate soon to be vacated by mr shields this was lyman trumbull an anti-slavery democrat when the legislature met it was found that mr lincoln lacked five votes of an election while mr trumbull had but five supporters after several ballots mr lincoln feared that trumbull's votes would be given to a democratic candidate and he determined to sacrifice himself for the principle at stake accordingly he instructed his friends in the legislature to vote for judge trumbull which they did resulting in trumbull's election the abolitionists in the west had become very radical in their views and did not hesitate to talk of opposing the extension of slavery by the use of force if necessary mr lincoln on the other hand was conservative and counseled moderation in the meantime many outrages growing out of the extension of slavery were being perpetrated on the borders of kansas and missouri and they no doubt influenced mr lincoln to take a more radical stand against the slavery question an incident occurred at this time which had great effect in this direction the negro son of a colored woman in springfield had gone south to work he was born free but did not have his free papers with him he was arrested and would have been sold into slavery to pay his prison expenses had not mr lincoln and some friends purchased his liberty previous to this mr lincoln had tried to secure the boy's release through the governor of illinois but the governor informed him that nothing could be done then it was that mr lincoln rose to his full height and exclaimed governor i'll make the ground in this country too hot for the foot of a slave whether you have the legal power to secure the release of this boy or not helps to organize the republican party the year after mr trumbull's election to the senate the republican party was formally organized a state convention of that party was called to meet at bloomington may twenty nine eighteen fifty six the call for this convention was signed by many springfield whigs and among the names was that of abraham lincoln mr lincoln's name had been signed to the call by his law partner but when he was informed of this action he endorsed it fully among the famous men who took part in this convention were abraham lincoln lyman trumbull david davis leonard sweat richard yates norman b judd and owen lovejoy the alton editor whose life like lincoln's finally paid the penalty for his abolition views the party nominated for governor william h bissell a veteran of the mexican war and adopted a platform ringing with anti-slavery sentiment 
mr lincoln was the greatest power in the campaign that followed he was one of the fremont presidential electors and he went to work with all his might to spread the new party gospel and make votes for the old pathfinder of the rocky mountains an amusing incident followed close after the bloomington convention a meeting was called at springfield to ratify the action at bloomington only three persons attended mr lincoln his law partner and a man named john payne mr lincoln made a speech to his colleagues in which among other things he said while all seems dead the age itself is not it liveth as sure as our maker liveth in this campaign mr lincoln was in general demand not only in his own state but in indiana iowa and wisconsin as well the result of that presidential campaign was the election of buchanan as president bissell as governor leaving mr lincoln the undisputed leader of the new party hence it was that two years later he was the inevitable man to oppose judge douglas in the campaign for united states senator the rail splitter versus the little giant no record of abraham lincoln's career would be complete without the story of the memorable joint debates between the rail splitter of the sangamon valley and the little giant the opening lines in mr lincoln's speech to the republican convention were not only prophetic of the coming rebellion but they clearly made the issue between the republican and democratic parties for two presidential campaigns to follow the memorable sentences were as follows a house divided against itself cannot stand i believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free i do not expect the union to be dissolved i do not expect the house to fall but i do expect it will cease to be divided it will become all the one thing or the other either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is in the course of ultimate extinction or its abogus will push it forward till it becomes alike lawful in all the states old as well as new north as well as south it is universally conceded that this speech contained the most important utterances of mr lincoln's life Previous to its delivery, the Democratic Convention had endorsed Mr. Douglas for re-election to the Senate, and the Republican Convention had resolved that Abraham Lincoln is our first and only choice for United States Senator to fill the vacancy about to be created by the expiration of Mr. Douglas's term of office. Before Judge Douglas had made many speeches in this senatorial campaign, Mr. Lincoln challenged him to a joint debate which was accepted and seven memorable meetings between these two great leaders followed the places and dates were ottawa august twenty first freeport august twenty seventh jonesboro september fifteenth charleston september eighteenth galesburg october seventh quincy october thirteenth and alton october fifteenth the debates not only attracted the attention of the people in the state of illinois but aroused an interest throughout the whole country equal to that of a presidential election were like crowds at a circus all the meetings of the joint debate were attended by immense crowds of people they came in all sorts of vehicles on horseback and many walked weary miles on foot to hear these two great leaders discuss the issues of the campaign there had never been political meetings held under such unusual conditions as these and there probably never will be again 
at every place the speakers were met by great crowds of their friends and escorted to the platforms in the open air where the debates were held the processions that escorted the speakers were most unique they carried flags and banners and were preceded by bands of music the people discharged cannons when they had them and when they did not blacksmith's ambles were made to take their places oftentimes a part of the escort would be mounted and in most of the processions were chariots containing young ladies representing the different states of the union designated by banners they carried besides the bands there was usually vocal music patriotic songs were the order of the day the star-spangled banner and hail columbia being great favorites so far as the crowds were concerned these joint debates took on the appearance of a circus day and this comparison was strengthened by the sale of lemonade fruit melons and confectionery on the outskirts of the gatherings at ottawa after his speech mr lincoln was carried around on the shoulders of his enthusiastic supporters who did not put him down until they reached the place where he was to spend the night in the joint debates each of the candidates asked the other a series of questions judge douglas's replies to mr lincoln's shrewd questions helped douglas to win the senatorial election but they lost him the support of the south in the campaign for president two years thereafter mr lincoln was told when he framed his questions that if douglas answers them in the way it was believed he would that the answers would make him senator that may be said mr lincoln but if he takes that shoe he never can be president the prophecy was correct mr douglas was elected senator but two years later only carried one state missouri for president his buckeye campaign after the close of this canvass, mr lincoln again devoted himself to the practice of his profession but he was destined to remain but a short time in retirement in the fall of 1859, Mr. Douglas went to Ohio to stump the state for his friend, Mr. Pugh, the Democratic candidate for governor. The Ohio Republicans at once asked Mr. Lincoln to come to the state and reply to the little giant. He accepted the invitation and made two masterly speeches in the campaign. In one of them, delivered at Cincinnati, he prophesied the outcome of the rebellion if the Southern people attempted to divide the Union by force. Addressing himself particularly to the Kentuckians in the audience, he said, I have told you what we mean to do. I want to know now, when that thing takes place, what do you mean to do? I often hear it intimated that you mean to divide the Union whenever a Republican or anything like it is elected President of the United States a voice that is so that is so one of them says i wonder if he is a kentuckian a voice he is a douglas man well then i want to know what you are going to do with your half of it are you going to split the ohio down through and push your half off a piece or are you going to keep it right alongside of us outrageous fellows or are you going to build up a wall some way between your country and ours by which that movable property of yours can't come over here any more to the danger of your losing it do you think you can better yourselves on that subject by leaving us here under no obligation whatever to return those specimens of your movable property that come hither 
you have divided the union because we would not do right with you as you think upon that subject when we cease to be under the obligations to do anything for you how much better off do you think you will be will you make war upon us and kill us all why gentlemen i think you are as gallant and as brave men as live that you can fight as bravely in a good cause man for man as any other people living that you have shown yourselves capable of this upon various occasions but man for man you are not better than we are and there are not so many of you as there are of us you will never make much of a hand at whipping us if we were fewer in numbers than you i think that you could whip us if we were equal it would likely be a drawn battle but being inferior in numbers you will make nothing by attempting to master us but perhaps i have addressed myself as long or longer to the kentuckians than i ought to have done inasmuch as i have said that whatever course you take we intend in the end to beat you first visit to new york later in the year mr lincoln also spoke in kansas where he was received with great enthusiasm and in february of the following year he made his great speech in cooper union new york to an immense gathering presided over by william cullen bryan the poet who was then editor of the new york evening post there was a great curiosity to see the western rail splitter who had so lately met the famous little giant of the west in debate and mr lincoln's speech was listened to by many of the ablest men in the east this speech won for him many supporters in the presidential campaign that followed for his hearers at once recognized his wonderful ability to deal with the questions then uppermost in the public mind first nomination for president the republican national convention of eighteen sixty met in chicago may sixteen in an immense building called the wigwam the leading candidates for president were william h seward of new york and abraham lincoln of illinois among others spoken of were salmon p chase of ohio and simon cameron of pennsylvania on the first ballot for president mr seward received one hundred and seventy three and a half votes mr lincoln one hundred and two votes the others scattering on the first ballot vermont had divided her vote but on the second the chairman of the vermont delegation announced vermont casts her ten votes for the young giant of the west abraham lincoln this was the turning point in the convention toward mr lincoln's nomination the second ballot resulted seward one hundred and eighty four and one half lincoln one hundred and eighty one on the third ballot mr lincoln received two hundred and thirty votes one and a half votes more would nominate him before the ballot was announced ohio made a change of four votes in favor of mr lincoln making him the nominee for president other states tried to follow ohio's example but it was a long time before any of the delegates could make themselves heard cannons planted on top of the wigwam were roaring and booming the large crowds in the wigwam and the immense throng outside were cheering at the top of their lungs while bands were playing victorious airs when order had been restored it was announced that on the third ballot abraham lincoln of illinois had received three hundred and fifty-four votes and was nominated by the republican party to the office of president of the united states mr lincoln heard the news of his nomination while sitting in a newspaper office in springfield and hurried home to tell his wife 
as mr lincoln had predicted judge douglas position on slavery in the territories lost him the support of the south and when the democratic convention met at charleston the slaveholding states forced the nomination of john c breckinridge a considerable number of people who did not agree with either party nominated john bell of tennessee in the election which followed mr lincoln carried all of the free states except new jersey which was divided between himself and douglas breckinridge carried all the slave states except kentucky tennessee and virginia which went for bell and missouri gave its vote to douglas formation of the southern confederacy the election was scarcely over before it was evident that the southern states did not intend to abide by the result and that a conspiracy was on foot to divide the union before the presidential election even the secretary of war in president buchanan's cabinet had removed one hundred and fifty thousand muskets from government armories in the north and sent them to government armories in the south before mr lincoln had prepared his inaugural address south carolina which took the lead in the secession movement had declared through her legislature her separation from the union before mr lincoln took his seat other southern states had followed the example of south carolina and a convention had been held at montgomery alabama which had elected jefferson davis president of the new confederacy and alexander h stevens of georgia vice-president southern men in the cabinet senate and house had resigned their seats and gone home and southern states were demanding that southern forts and government property in their section should be turned over to them between his election and inauguration mr lincoln remained silent reserving his opinions and a declaration of his policy for his inaugural address before mr lincoln's departure from springfield for washington threats had been freely made that he would never reach the capital alive and in fact a conspiracy was then afoot to take his life in the city of baltimore mr lincoln left springfield on february the eleventh in company with his wife and three sons his brother-in-law dr w s wallace david davis norman b judge elmer e ellsworth ward h layman colonel e v sunder of the united states army and the president's two secretaries goodbye to the old folk early in february before leaving for washington mr lincoln slipped away from springfield and paid a visit to his aged stepmother in coles county he also paid a visit to the unmarked grave of his father and ordered a suitable stone to mark the spot before leaving springfield he made an address to his fellow townsmen in which he displayed sincere sorrow at parting from them friends he said no one who has never been placed in a like position can understand my feelings at this hour nor the oppressive sadness i feel at this parting for more than a quarter of a century i have lived among you and during all that time i have received nothing but kindness at your hands here i have lived from my youth until now i am an old man here the most sacred ties of earth were assumed here all my children were born and here one of them lies buried to you dear friends i owe all that i have all that i am all the strange checkered past seems to crowd now upon my mind to-day i leave you 
i go to assume a task more difficult than that which devolved upon washington unless the great god who assisted him shall be with and aid me i must fail but if the same omniscient mind and almighty arm that directed and protected him shall guide and support me i shall not fail i shall succeed let us all pray that the god of our fathers may not forsake us now to him i commend you all permit me to ask that with equal sincerity and faith you will invoke his wisdom and guidance for me with these words i must leave you for how long i know not friends one and all i must now bid you an affectionate farewell the journey from springfield to philadelphia was a continuous ovation for mr lincoln crowds assembled to meet him at the various places along the way and he made them short speeches full of humor and good feeling at harrisburg pennsylvania the party was met by alan pinkerton who knew of the plot in baltimore to take the life of mr lincoln the secret passage to washington throughout his entire life abraham lincoln's physical courage was as great and superb as his moral courage when mr pinkerton and mr judd urged the president-elect to leave for washington that night he positively refused to do it he said he had made an engagement to assist at a flag-raising in the forenoon of the next day and to show himself to the people of harrisburg in the afternoon and that he intended to keep both engagements at philadelphia the president's party was met by mr seward's son frederick who had been sent to warn mr lincoln of the plot against his life mr judd mr pinkerton and mr layman figured out a plan to take mr lincoln through baltimore between midnight and daybreak when the would-be assassins would not be expecting him and this plan was carried out so thoroughly that even the conductor on the train did not know the president-elect was on board mr lincoln was put into his berth and the curtains drawn he was supposed to be a sick man when the conductor came round mr pinkerton handed him the sick man's ticket and he passed on without question when the train reached baltimore at half-past three o'clock in the morning it was met by one of mr pinkerton's detectives who reported that everything was all right and in a short time the party was speeding on to the national capital where rooms had been engaged for mr lincoln and his guard at willard's hotel mr lincoln always regretted this secret passage to washington for it was repugnant to a man of his high courage he had agreed to the plan simply because all of his friends urged it as the best thing to do now that all the facts are known it is assured that his friends were right and that there never was a moment from the day he crossed the maryland line until his assassination that his life was not in danger and was only saved as long as it was by the constant vigilance of those who were guarding him End of part twenty eight Part twenty nine of Lincoln's Yarns and Stories by Alexander K. McClure. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part twenty nine. His Eloquent Inaugural Address. The wonderful eloquence of Abraham Lincoln, clear, sincere, natural, 
found grand expression in his first inaugural address in which he not only outlined his policy toward the states in rebellion but made that beautiful and eloquent plea for conciliation the closing sentences of mr lincoln's first inaugural address deservedly take rank with his gettysburg speech in your hands my dissatisfied fellow-countrymen he said and not in mine is the momentous issue of civil war the government will not assail you you can have no conflict without being yourselves the aggressors you have no oath registered in heaven to destroy the government while i shall have the most solemn one to preserve protect and defend it i am loath to close we are not enemies but friends we must not be enemies though passion may have strained it must not break our bonds of affection the mystic cord of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the union when again touched as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature follows precedent of washington in selecting his cabinet mr lincoln consciously or unconsciously followed a precedent established by washington of selecting men of almost opposite opinions his cabinet was composed of william h seward of new york secretary of state salmon p chase of ohio secretary of the treasury simon cameron of pennsylvania secretary of war gideon e wells of connecticut secretary of the navy caleb b smith of indiana secretary of the interior montgomery blair of maryland postmaster general edward bates of missouri attorney general mr chase although an anti-slavery leader was a state's right federal republican while mr seward was a whig without having connected himself with the anti-slavery movement mr chase and mr seward the leading men of mr lincoln's cabinet were as widely apart and antagonistic in their views as were jefferson the democrat and hamilton the federalist the two leaders in washington's cabinet but in bringing together these two strong men as his chief advisers both of whom had been rival candidates for the presidency mr lincoln gave another example of his own greatness and self-reliance and put them both in a position to render greater service to the government than they could have done probably as president mr lincoln had been in office little more than five weeks when the war of the rebellion began by the firing on fort sumter greater diplomat than seward the war of the rebellion revealed to the people in fact to the whole world the many sides of abraham lincoln's character it showed him as a real ruler of men not a ruler by the mere power of might but by the power of a great brain in his cabinet were the ablest men in the country yet they all knew that lincoln was abler than any of them mr seward the secretary of state was a man famed in statesmanship and diplomacy during the early stages of the civil war when france and england were seeking an excuse to interfere and help the southern confederacy mr seward wrote a letter to our minister in london charles francis adams instructing him concerning the attitude of the federal government on the question of interference which would undoubtedly have brought about a war with england if abraham lincoln had not corrected and amended the letter 
he did this too without yielding a point or sacrificing in any way his own dignity or that of the country lincoln a great general throughout the four years of war mr lincoln spent a great deal of time in the war department receiving news from the front and conferring with secretary of war stanton concerning military affairs mr lincoln's war secretary edwin m stanton who had succeeded simon cameron was a man of wonderful personality and iron will it is generally conceded that no other man could have managed the great war secretary so well as lincoln stanton had his way in most matters but when there was an important difference of opinion he always found lincoln was the master although mr lincoln's communication to the generals in the field were oftener in the nature of suggestions than positive orders every military leader recognized mr lincoln's ability in military operations in the early stages of the war mr lincoln followed closely every plan and movement of mcclellan and the correspondence between them proves mr lincoln to have been far the abler general of the two he kept close watch of burnside too and when he gave the command of the army of the potomac to fighting joe hooker he also gave that general some fatherly counsel and advice which was of great benefit to him as a commander absolute confidence in grant it was not until general grant had been made commander-in-chief that president lincoln felt he had at last found a general who did not need much advice he was the first to recognize that grant was a great military leader and when he once felt sure of this fact nothing could shake his confidence in that general delegation after delegation called at the white house and asked for grant's removal from the head of the army they accused him of being a butcher a drunkard a man without sense or feeling president lincoln listened to all of these attacks but he always had an apt answer to silence grant's enemies Grant was doing what Lincoln wanted done from the first. He was fighting and winning victories, and victories are the only thing that count in war. Reasons for Freeing the Slaves The crowning act of Lincoln's career as president was the emancipation of the slaves. All of his life he had believed in gradual emancipation, but all of his plans contemplated payment to the slaveholders while he had always been opposed to slavery he did not take any steps to use it as a war measure until about the middle of eighteen sixty two his chief object was to preserve the union he wrote to horace greeley that if he could save the union without freeing any of the slaves he would do it that if he could save it by freeing some and leaving others in slavery he would do that that if it became necessary to free all the slaves in order to save the union he would take that course the anti-slavery men were continually urging mr lincoln to set the slaves free but he paid no attention to their petitions and demands until he felt that emancipation would help him to preserve the union of the states the outlook for the union cause grew darker and darker in eighteen sixty two and mr lincoln began to think as he expressed it that he must change his tactics or lose the game accordingly he decided to issue the emancipation proclamation as soon as the union army won a substantial victory the battle of antietam on september seventeen gave him the opportunity he sought 
he told secretary chase that he had made a solemn vow before god that if general lee should be driven back from pennsylvania he would crown the result by a declaration of freedom to the slaves on the twenty-second of that month he issued a proclamation stating that at the end of one hundred days he would issue another proclamation declaring all slaves within any state or territory to be forever free which was done in the form of the famous emancipation proclamation hard to refuse pardons in the conduct of the war and in his purpose to maintain the union abraham lincoln exhibited a will of iron and determination that could not be shaken but in his daily contact with the mothers wives and daughters begging for the life of some soldier who had been condemned to death for desertion or sleeping on duty he was as gentle and weak as a woman it was a difficult matter for him to refuse a pardon if the slightest excuse could be found for granting it secretary stanton and the commanding generals were loud in declaring that mr lincoln would destroy the discipline of the army by his wholesale pardoning of condemned soldiers but when we come to examine the individual cases we find that lincoln was nearly always right and when he erred it was always on the side of humanity during the four years of the long struggle for the preservation of the union mr lincoln kept open shop as he expressed it where the general public could always see him and make known their wants and complaints even the private soldier was not denied admittance to the president's private office and no request or complaint was too small or trivial to enlist his sympathy and interest a fun-loving and humor-loving man it was once said of shakespeare that the great mind that conceived the tragedies of hamlet macbeth etc would have lost its reason if it had not found vent in the sparkling humour of such comedies as the merry wives of windsor and the comedy of errors the great strain on the mind of abraham lincoln produced by four years of civil war might likewise have overcome his reason had it not found vent in the yarns and stories he constantly told no more fun-loving or humor-loving man than abraham lincoln ever lived he enjoyed a joke even when it was on himself and probably while he got his greatest enjoyment from telling stories he had a keen appreciation of the humor in those that were told to him his favorite humorous writer was david r locke better known as petroleum v nasby whose political sapphires were quite famous in their day nearly every prominent man who has written his recollections of lincoln has told how the president in the middle of a conversation on some serious subject would suddenly stop and ask his hearer if he ever read the nasby letters then he would take from his desk a pamphlet containing the letters and proceed to read them laughing heartily at the good points they contained there is probably no better evidence of mr lincoln's love of humor and appreciation of it than his letter to nasby in which he said for the ability to write these things i would gladly trade places with you mr lincoln was re-elected president in eighteen sixty four his opponent on the democratic ticket was general george b mcclellan whose command of the army of the potomac had been so unsatisfactory at the beginning of the war mr lincoln's election was almost unanimous as mcclellan carried but three states delaware kentucky and new jersey general grant in a telegram of congratulation said that it was a victory worth more to the country than a battle won 
the war was fast drawing to a close the black war clouds were breaking and rolling away sherman had made his famous march to the sea through swamp and ravine grant was rapidly tightening the lines around richmond thomas had won his title of the rock of chickamauga sheridan had won his spurs as the great modern cavalry commander and had cleaned out the shenandoah valley sherman was coming back from his famous march to join grant at richmond the confederacy was without a navy the kearsarge had sunk the alabama and farragut had fought and won the famous victory in mobile bay it was certain that lee would soon have to evacuate richmond only to fall into the hands of grant lincoln saw the dawn of peace when he came to deliver his second inaugural address it contained no note of victory no exultation over a fallen foe on the contrary it breathed the spirit of brotherly love and of prayer for an early peace with malice toward none with charity for all with firmness in the right as god gives us to see the right let us finish the work we are in to bind up the nation's wounds to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphans to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations not long thereafter general lee evacuated richmond with about half of his original army closely pursued by grant the boys in blue overtook their brothers in gray at appomattox courthouse and there beneath the warm rays of an april sun the great confederate general made his final surrender the war was over the american flag was floated over all the territory of the united states and peace was now a reality mr lincoln visited richmond and the final scenes of the war and then returned to washington to carry out his announced plan of binding up the nation's wounds he had now reached the climax of his career and touched the highest point of his greatness his great task was over and the heavy burden that had so long worn upon his heart was lifted while the whole nation was rejoicing over the return of peace the savior of the union was stricken down by the hand of an assassin. End of part twenty nine. Part thirty of Lincoln's Yarns and Stories by Alexander K. McClure. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part thirty. Warnings of his tragic death. From early youth, Mr. Lincoln had presentiments that he would die a violent death or rather that his final days would be marked by some great tragic event from the time of his first election to the presidency his closest friends had tried to make him understand that he was in constant danger of assassination but notwithstanding his presentiments he had such splendid courage that he only laughed at their fears during the summer months he lived at the soldier's home some miles from washington and frequently made the trip between the white house and the home without a guard or escort secretary of war stanton and ward layman marshal of the district were almost constantly alarmed over mr lincoln's carelessness in exposing himself to the danger of assassination they warned him time and again and provided suitable bodyguards to attend him but mr lincoln would often give the guards the slip and mounting his favorite riding horse old abe would set out alone after dark from the white house for the soldier's home 
while riding to the home one night he was fired upon by someone in ambush the bullet passing through his high hat mr lincoln would not admit that the man who fired the shot had tried to kill him he always attributed it to an accident and begged his friends to say nothing about it now that all the circumstances of the assassination are known it is plain that there was a deep-laid and well-conceived plot to kill mr lincoln long before the crime was actually committed when mr lincoln was delivering his second inaugural address on the steps of the capitol an excited individual tried to force his way through the guards in the building to get on the platform with mr lincoln it was afterward learned that this man was john wilkes booth who afterwards assassinated Mr. Lincoln in Ford's Theater on the night of the 14th of April. Lincoln at the Theater The manager of the theater had invited the president to witness a performance of a new play known as Our American Cousin, in which the famous actress Laura Keene was playing. Mr. Lincoln was particularly fond of the theater. He loved Shakespeare's plays above all others, and never missed a chance to see the leading Shakespearean actors as our american cousin was a new play the president did not care particularly to see it but as mrs lincoln was anxious to go he consented and accepted the invitation general grant was in washington at the time and as he was extremely anxious about the personal safety of the president he reported every day regularly at the white house mr lincoln invited general grant and his wife to accompany him and mrs lincoln to the theater on the night of the assassination and the general accepted but while they were talking he received a note from mrs grant saying that she wished to leave washington that evening to visit her daughter in burlington general grant made his excuses to the president and left to accompany mrs grant to the railway station it afterwards became known that it was also a part of the plot to assassinate general grant and only mrs grant's departure from washington that evening prevented the attempt from being made general grant afterwards said that as he and mrs grant were riding along pennsylvania avenue to the railway station a horseman rode rapidly by at a gallop and wheeling his horse rode back peering into their carriage as he passed mrs grant remarked to the general that is the very man who sat near us at luncheon today and tried to overhear our conversation he was so rude you remember as to cause us to leave the dining-room here he is again riding after us general grant attributed the action of the man to idle curiosity but learned afterwards that the horseman was john wilkes booth layman's remarkable request probably one reason why mr lincoln did not particularly care to go to the theatre that night was a sort of half promise he had made to his friend and bodyguard marshal layman two days previous he had sent layman to richmond on business connected with the call of a convention for reconstruction before leaving mr layman saw mr usher the secretary of the interior and asked him to persuade mr lincoln to use more caution about his personal safety and to go out as little as possible while layman was absent together they went to see mr lincoln and layman asked the president if he would make him a promise i think i can venture to say i will said mr lincoln what is it promise me that you will not go out after night while i am gone said mr layman particularly to the theatre mr lincoln turned to mr usher and said usher this boy is a monomaniac on the subject of my safety 
i can hear him or hear of his being around at all times in the night to prevent somebody from murdering me he thinks i shall be killed and we think he is going crazy what does anyone want to assassinate me for if anyone wants to do so he can do it any day or night if he is ready to give his life for mine it is nonsense mr usher said to mr lincoln that it was well to heed layman's warning as he was thrown among people from whom he had better opportunities to know about such matters than almost any one well said mr lincoln to layman i promise to do the best i can toward it how lincoln was murdered the assassination of president lincoln was most carefully planned even to the smallest detail the box set apart for the president's party was a double one in the second tier at the left of the stage the box had two doors with spring locks but booth had loosened the screws with which they were fastened so that it was impossible to secure them from the inside in one door he had bored a hole with a gimlet so that he could see what was going on inside the box an employee of the theatre by the name of spangler who was an accomplice of the assassin had even arranged the seats in the box to suit the purpose of booth on the fateful night the theatre was packed the presidential party arrived a few minutes after nine o'clock and consisted of the president and mrs lincoln miss harris and major rathbone daughter and stepson of senator harris of new york the immense audience rose to its feet and cheered the president as he passed to his box booth came into the theater about ten o'clock he had not only planned to kill the president but he had also planned to escape into maryland and a swift horse saddled and ready for the journey was tied in the rear of the theater for a few minutes he pretended to be interested in the performance and then gradually made his way back to the door of the president's box before reaching there however he was confronted by one of the president's messengers who had been stationed at the end of the passage leading to the boxes to prevent anyone from intruding to this man booth handed a card saying that the president had sent for him and was permitted to enter once inside the hallway leading to the boxes he closed the hall door and fastened it by a bar prepared for the occasion so that it was impossible to open it from without then he quickly entered the box through the right-hand door the president was sitting in an easy armchair in the left-hand corner of the box nearest the audience he was leaning on one hand and with the other had hold of a portion of the drapery there was a smile on his face the other members of the party were intently watching the performance on the stage the assassin carried in his right hand a small silver-mounted derringer pistol and in his left a long double-edged dagger he placed the pistol just behind the president's left ear and fired mr lincoln bent slightly forward and his eyes closed but in every other respect his attitude remained unchanged the report of the pistol startled major rathbone who sprang to his feet the murderer was then about six feet from the president and rathbone grappled with him but was shaken off dropping his pistol booth struck at rathbone with the dagger and inflicted a severe wound the assassin then placed his left hand lightly on the railing of the box and jumped to the stage eight or nine feet below booth brandishes his dagger and escapes 
the box was draped with the american flag and in jumping booth's spurs caught in the folds tearing down the flag the assassin falling heavily to the stage and spraining his ankle he arose however and walked theatrically across the stage brandishing his knife and shouted six semper tyrannus and then added the south is avenged for the moment the audience was horrified and incapable of action one man only a lawyer named stewart had sufficient presence of mind to leap upon the stage and attempt to capture the assassin booth went to the rear door of the stage where his horse was held in readiness for him and leaping into the saddle dashed through the streets toward virginia miss keene rushed to the president's box with water and stimulants and medical aid was summoned by this time the audience realized the tragedy that had been enacted and then followed a scene such as has never been witnessed in any public gathering in this country women wept shrieked and fainted men raved and swore and horror was depicted on every face before the audience could be gotten out of the theatre horsemen were dashing through the streets and the telegraph was carrying the terrible details of the tragedy throughout the nation walt whitman's description walt whitman the poet has sketched in graphic language the scene of that most eventful fourteenth of april his account of the assassination has become historic and is herewith given the day april fourteenth eighteen sixty five seems to have been a pleasant one throughout the whole land the moral atmosphere pleasant too the long storm so dark so fratricidal full of blood and doubt and gloom over and ended at last by the sunrise of such an absolute national victory and utter breaking down of secession we almost doubted our senses lee had capitulated beneath the apple tree at appomattox the other armies the flanges of the revolt swiftly followed and could it really be then out of all the affairs of this world of woe and passion of failure and disorder and dismay was there really come the confirmed unerring sign of peace like a shaft of pure light of rightful rule of god but i must not dwell on accessories the deed hastens the popular afternoon paper the little evening star had scattered all over its third page divided among the advertisements in a sensational manner in a hundred different places the president and his lady will be at the theatre this evening lincoln was fond of the theatre i have myself seen him there several times i remember thinking how funny it was that he the leading actor in the greatest and stormiest drama known to real history stage through centuries should sit there and be so completely interested in those human jackstraws moving about with their silly little gestures foreign spirit and flatulent text so the day as i say was propitious early herbage early flowers were out i remember where i was stopping at the time the season being advanced there were many lilacs in full bloom by one of those caprices that enter and give tinge to events without being a part of them i find myself always reminded of the great tragedy of this day by the sight and odour of these blossoms it never fails 
on this occasion the theatre was crowded many ladies in rich and gay costumes officers in their uniforms many well-known citizens young folks the usual cluster of gas lights the usual magnetism of so many people cheerful with perfumes music of violins and flutes and over all that saturating that vast vague wonder victory the nation's victory the triumph of the union filling the air the thought the sense with exhilaration more than all the perfumes the president came betimes and with his wife witnessed the play from the large stage boxes of the second tier two thrown into one and profusely draped with the national flag the acts and scenes of the piece one of those singularly witless compositions which have at the least the merit of giving an entire relief to an audience engaged in mental action or business excitements and cares during the day as it makes not the slightest call on either the moral emotional aesthetic or spiritual nature a piece in which among other characters so called a yankee certainly such a one as was never seen or at least like it ever seen in north america is introduced in england with a varied falderal of talk plot scenery and such phantasmagoria as goes to make up a modern popular drama had progressed perhaps through a couple of its acts when in the midst of this comedy or tragedy or none such or whatever it is to be called and to offset it or finish it out as if in nature's and the great muse's mockery of these poor mimics comes interpolated that scene not really or exactly to be described at all for on the many hundreds who were there it seems to this hour to have left little but a passing blur a dream a blotch and yet partially described as i now proceed to give it there is a scene in the play representing the modern parlor in which two unprecedented ladies are informed by the unprecedented and impossible yankee that he is not a man of fortune and therefore undesirable for marriage-catching purposes after which the comments being finished the dramatic trio make exit leaving the stage clear for a moment there was a pause a hush as it were at this period came the death of abraham lincoln great as that was with all its manifold trains circling around it and stretching into the future for many a century in the politics history art etc of the new world in point of fact the main thing the actual murder transpired with the quiet and simplicity of any commonest occurrence the bursting of a bud or pod in the growth of vegetation for instance through the general hum following the stage pause with the change of position etc came the muffled sound of a pistol shot which not one hundredth part of the audience heard at the time and yet a moment's hush somehow surely a vague startled thrill and then through the ornamented draperied starred and striped spaceway of the president's box a sudden figure a man raises himself with hands and feet stands a moment on the railing leaps below to the stage falls out of position catching his boot heel in the copious drapery the american flag falls on one knee quickly recovers himself rises as if nothing had happened he really sprains his ankle unfelt then 
and the figure booth the murderer dressed in plain black broadcloth bareheaded with a full head of glossy raven hair and his eyes like some mad animals flashing with light and resolution yet with a certain strange calmness holds aloft in one hand a large knife walks along not much back of the footlights turns fully toward the audience his face of statuesque beauty lit by those basilisk eyes flashing with desperation perhaps insanity launches out in a firm and steady voice the words sic semper terenus and then walks with neither slow nor very rapid pace diagonally across to the back of the stage and disappears had not all this terrible scene making the mimic ones preposterous had it not all been rehearsed in blank by booth beforehand a moment's hush incredulous a scream a cry of murder mrs lincoln leaning out of the box with ashy cheeks and lips with involuntary cry pointing to the retreating figure he has killed the president and still a moment's strange incredulous suspense and then the deluge then that mixture of horror noises uncertainty the sound somewhere back of a horse's hoofs clattering with speed the people burst through chairs and railings and break them up that noise adds to the queerness of the scene there is inextricable confusion and terror women faint quite feeble persons fall and are trampled on many cries of agony are heard the broad stage suddenly fills to suffocation with a dense and motley crowd like some horrible carnival the audience rush generally upon it at least the strong men do the actors and actresses are there in their play costumes and painted faces with mortal fright showing through the rouge some trembling some in tears the screams and calls confused talk redoubled trebled two or three manage to pass up water from the stage to the president's box others try to clamber up etc etc in the midst of all this the soldiers of the president's guard with others suddenly drawn to the scene burst in some two hundred altogether they stormed the house through all the tiers especially the upper ones inflamed with fury literally charging the audience with fixed bayonets muskets and pistols shouting clear out clear out such a wild scene or a suggestion of it rather inside the playhouse that night outside too in the atmosphere of shock and craze crowds of people filled with frenzy ready to seize any outlet for it came near committing murder several times on innocent individuals one such case was particularly exciting the infuriated crowd through some chance got started against one man either for words he uttered or perhaps without any cause at all and were proceeding to hang him at once to a neighboring lamp-post when he was rescued by a few heroic policemen who placed him in their midst and fought their way slowly and amid great peril toward the station-house it was a fitting episode of the whole affair the crowd rushing and eddying to and fro the night the yells the pale faces many frightened people trying in vain to extricate themselves the attacked man not yet freed from the jaws of death looking like a corpse 
the silent resolute half-dozen policemen with no weapon but their little clubs yet stern and steady through all those eddying swarms made indeed a fitting side-scene to the grand tragedy of the murder they gained the station-house with the protected man whom they placed in security for the night and discharged in the morning and in the midst of that night pandemonium of senseless hate infuriated soldiers the audience and the crowd the stage and all its actors and actresses its paint-pots spangles gaslights the life-blood from those veins the best and sweetest of the land drips slowly down the death's ooze already begins its little bubbles on the lips such hurriedly sketched were the accompaniments of the death of president lincoln so suddenly and in murder and horror unsurpassed he was taken from us but his death was painless the assassin's bullet did not produce instant death but the president never again became conscious he was carried to a house opposite the theatre where he died the next morning in the meantime the authorities had become aware of the wide-reaching conspiracy and the capital was in a state of terror on the night of the president's assassination mr seward secretary of state was attacked while in bed with a broken arm by booth's fellow conspirators and badly wounded the conspirators had also planned to take the lives of vice president johnson and secretary stanton booth had called on vice president johnson the day before and not finding him in left a card secretary stanton acted with his usual promptness and courage during the period of excitement he acted as president and directed the plans for the capture of booth among other things he issued the following reward reward offered by secretary stanton war department washington april twenty eighteen sixty five major general john a dix new york the murderer of our late beloved president abraham lincoln is still at large fifty thousand dollars reward will be paid by this department for his apprehension in addition to any reward offered by municipal authorities or state executives twenty five thousand dollars reward will be paid for the apprehension of g w atzerodt sometimes called port tobacco one of booth's accomplices twenty five thousand dollars reward will be paid for the apprehension of david c harold another of booth's accomplices a liberal reward will be paid for any information that shall conduce to the arrest of either the above-named criminals or their accomplices all persons harboring or secreting the said persons or either of them or aiding or assisting their concealment or escape will be treated as accomplices in the murder of the president and the attempted assassination of the secretary of state and shall be subject to trial before a military commission and the punishment of death let the stain of innocent blood be removed from the land by the arrest and punishment of the murderers all good citizens are exhorted to aid public justice on this occasion every man should consider his own conscience charged with this solemn duty and rest neither night nor day until it be accomplished edwin m stanton secretary of war booth found in a barn 
booth accompanied by david c harold a fellow conspirator finally made his way into maryland where eleven days after the assassination the two were discovered in a barn on garrett's farm near port royal on the rappahannock the barn was surrounded by a squad of cavalrymen who called upon the assassins to surrender harold gave himself up and was roundly cursed and abused by booth who declared that he would never be taken alive the cavalrymen then set fire to the barn and as the flames leaped up the figure of the assassin could be plainly seen although the wall of fire prevented him from seeing the soldiers colonel conger saw him standing upright upon a crutch with a carbine in his hands when the fire first blazed up booth crept on his hands and knees to the spot evidently for the purpose of shooting the man who had applied the torch but the plays prevented him from seeing anyone then it seemed as if he were preparing to extinguish the flames but seeing the impossibility of this he started toward the door with his carbine held ready for action his eyes shone with the light of fever but he was pale as death and his general appearance was haggard and unkempt he had shaved off his moustache and his hair was closely cropped both he and harold wore the uniforms of confederate soldiers booth shot by boston's corbett the last orders given to the squad pursuing booth were don't shoot booth but take him alive just as booth started to the door of the barn this order was disobeyed by a sergeant named boston corbett who fired through a crevice and shot booth in the neck the wounded man was carried out of the barn and died four hours afterward on the grass where they had laid him before he died he whispered to lieutenant baker tell mother i died for my country i thought i did for the best what became of booth's body has always been and probably always will be a mystery many different stories have been told concerning his final resting place but all that is known positively is that the body was first taken to washington and a post-mortem examination of it held on the monitor montauk on the night of april twenty seventh it was turned over to two men who took it in a rowboat and disposed of it secretly how they disposed of it none but themselves know and they have never told fate of the conspirators the conspiracy to assassinate the president involved altogether twenty-five people among the number captured and tried were david c harold g w azerot louis payne edward spangler michael o'laughlin samuel arnold mrs surratt and dr samuel mudd a physician who set booth's leg which was sprained by his fall from the stage box of these harold azerot payne and mrs surratt were hanged dr mudd was deported to the dry tortugas while there an epidemic of yellow fever broke out and he rendered such good service that he was granted a pardon and died a number of years ago in maryland john surratt the son of the woman who was hanged made his escape to italy where he became one of the papal guards in the vatican at rome his presence there was discovered by archbishop hughes and although there were no extradition laws to cover his case the italian government gave him up to the united states authorities he had two trials 
at the first the jury disagreed the long delay before his second trial allowed him to escape by pleading the statute of limitation spangler and o'laughlin were sent to the dry tortugas and served their time ford the owner of the theatre in which the president was assassinated was a southern sympathizer and when he attempted to reopen his theatre after the great national tragedy secretary stanton refused to allow it the government afterward bought the theatre and turned it into a national museum president lincoln was buried at springfield and on the day of his funeral there was universal grief henry ward beecher's eulogy no final words of that great life can be more fitly spoken than the eulogy pronounced by henry ward beecher and now the martyr is moving in triumphal march mightier than when alive the nation rises up at every stage of his coming cities and states are his pallbearers and the cannon speaks the honors with solemn progression dead 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 he yet speaketh is washington dead is hampton dead is any man that was ever fit to live dead disenthralled of flesh risen to the unobstructed sphere where passion never comes he begins his illimitable work his life is now grafted upon the infinite and will be fruitful as no earthly life can be pass on thou that hast overcome ye people behold the martyr whose blood as so many articulate words please for fidelity for law for liberty abraham lincoln's family abraham lincoln was married on november four eighteen forty two to miss mary todd four sons being the issue of the union robert todd born august one eighteen forty three removed to chicago after his father's death practiced law and became wealthy in eighteen eighty one he was appointed secretary of war by president garfield and served through president arthur's term was made minister to england in eighteen eighty nine and served four years became counsel for the pullman palace car company and succeeded to the presidency of that corporation upon the death of george m pullman edward baker born march tenth eighteen forty six died in infancy william wallace born december twenty one eighteen fifty died in the white house in february eighteen sixty two thomas known as tad born april four eighteen fifty three died in eighteen seventy one mrs lincoln died in her sixty-fourth year at the home of her sister mrs ninian w edwards at springfield illinois in eighteen eighty two she was the daughter of robert s todd of kentucky her great-uncle, John Todd, and her grandfather, Levi Todd, accompanied General George Rogers Clark to Illinois and were present at the capture of Kaskaskia and Vincennes. In December 1778, John Todd was appointed by Patrick Henry, governor of Virginia, to be lieutenant of the county of Illinois, then a part of Virginia. Colonel John Todd was one of the original proprietors of the town of Lexington, Kentucky. While encamped on the site of the present city, he heard of the opening battle of the Revolution and named his infant son Settlement in its honor. 
mrs lincoln was a proud ambitious woman well educated speaking french fluently and familiar with the ways of the best society in lexington kentucky where she was born december thirteenth eighteen eighteen she was a pupil of madame Mantelli, whose celebrated seminary in lexington was directly opposite the residence of henry clay the conversation at the seminary was carried on entirely in french she visited springfield illinois in 1837 remained three months and then returned to her native state in 1839 she made springfield her permanent home she lived with her eldest sister elizabeth wife of ninian w edwards lincoln's colleague in the legislature and it was not strange she and lincoln should meet stephen a douglas was also a friend of the edwards family and a suitor for her hand but she rejected him to accept the future president she was one of the bells of the town she is thus described at the time she made her home in springfield eighteen thirty nine she was one of the average height weighing about a hundred and thirty pounds she was rather compactly built had a well-rounded face rich dark brown hair and bluish-gray eyes in her bearing she was proud but handsome and vivacious she was a good conversationalist using with equal fluency the french and english languages when she used a pen its point was sure to be sharp and she wrote with wit and ability she not only had a quick intellect but an intuitive judgment of men and their motives ordinarily she was affable and even charming in her manners but when offended or antagonized she could be very bitter and sarcastic in her figure and physical proportions in education bearing temperament history in everything she was the exact reverse of lincoln that mrs lincoln was very proud of her husband there is no doubt and it is probable that she married him largely from motives of ambition she knew lincoln better than he knew himself she instinctively felt that he would occupy a proud position some day and it is a matter of record that she told ward layman her husband's law partner that mr lincoln will yet be president of the united states mrs lincoln was decidedly pro-slavery in her views but this never disturbed lincoln in various ways they were unlike her fearless witty and austere nature had nothing in common with the calm imperturbable and simple ways of her thoughtful and absent-minded husband she was bright and sparkling in conversation and fit to grace any drawing-room she well knew that to marry lincoln meant not a life of luxury and ease for lincoln was not a man to accumulate wealth but in him she saw position in society prominence in the world and the grandest social distinction by that means her ambition was certainly satisfied for nineteen years after her marriage she was the first lady of the land and the mistress of the white house after his marriage by dint of untiring efforts and the recognition of influential friends the couple managed through rare frugality to move along in lincoln's struggles both in the law and for political advancement his wife shared his sacrifices she was a plucky little woman and in fact endowed with a more restless ambition than he she was gifted with a rare insight into the motives that actuate mankind and there is no doubt that much of lincoln's success was in a measure attributable to her acuteness and the stimulus of her influence 
his election to congress within four years after their marriage afforded her extreme gratification she loved power and prominence and was inordinately proud of her tall and ungainly husband she saw in him bright prospects ahead and his every move was watched by her with the closest interest if to other persons he seemed homely to her he was the embodiment of noble manhood and each succeeding day impressed upon her the wisdom of her choice of lincoln over douglas if in reality she ever seriously accepted the latter's attentions mr lincoln may not be as handsome a figure she said one day in lincoln's law office during her husband's absence when the conversation turned on douglas but the people are perhaps not aware that his heart is as large as his arms are long lincoln monument at springfield the remains of abraham lincoln rest beneath a magnificent monument in oak ridge cemetery springfield illinois before they were deposited in their final resting place they were moved many times on may four eighteen sixty five all that was mortal of abraham lincoln was deposited in the receiving vault at the cemetery until a tomb could be built in eighteen seventy six thieves made an unsuccessful attempt to steal the remains from the tomb the body of the martyred president was removed later to the monument a flight of iron steps commencing about fifty yards east of the vault ascends in a curved line to the monument an elevation of more than fifty feet excavation for this monument commenced september nine eighteen sixty nine it is built of granite from quarries at biddeford maine the rough ashlers were shipped to quincy massachusetts where they were dressed and numbered thence shipped to springfield it is seven hundred and twenty one feet from east to west a hundred and nineteen and a half feet from north to south and a hundred feet high the total cost is about two hundred and thirty thousand dollars to may first eighteen eighty five all the statuary is orange colored bronze the whole monument was designed by larkin g meade the statuary was modeled in plaster by him in florence italy and cast by the ames manufacturing company of chicopee massachusetts a statue of lincoln and the coat of arms were first placed on the monument the statue was unveiled and the monument dedicated october fifteenth eighteen seventy four infantry and naval groups were put on in september eighteen seventy seven an artillery group april thirteen eighteen eighty two and a cavalry group march thirteen eighteen eighty three the principal front of the monument is on the south side the statue of lincoln being on that side of the obelisk over memorial hall on the east side are three tablets upon which are the letters u s a to the right of that and beginning with virginia we find the abbreviations of the original thirteen states next comes vermont the first state admitted after the union was perfected the states following in the order they were admitted ending with nebraska on the east thus forming the cordon of thirty-seven states composing the united states of america when the monument was erected the new states admitted since the monument was built have been added the statue of lincoln is just above the coat of arms of the united states 
the grand climax is indicated by president lincoln with his left hand holding out as a golden scepter the emancipation proclamation while in his right he holds the pen with which he has just written it the right hand is resting on another badge of authority the american flag thrown over the fasces at the foot of the fasces lies a wreath of laurel with which to crown the president as the victor over slavery and rebellion on march tenth nineteen hundred president lincoln's body was removed to a temporary vault to permit of alterations to the monument the shaft was made twenty feet higher and other changes were made costing a hundred thousand dollars april twenty four nineteen o one the body was again transferred to the monument without public ceremony end of part thirty end of lincoln's yarns and stories by alexander k mcclure